welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Mark Bubbs, and in today's episode number 40, we're going to talk speed, sprinting, and high performance with world expert and international sport performance consultant to Olympians, professional and elite athletes, Mr. Derek Hansen. Derek's going to kick things off by chatting about the evolutionary importance of sprinting and how it's one of the purest expressions of the fight or flight response. He then explains how sprinting is not just a linear effect, but rather how almost every step from the start through acceleration to maximum velocity offers a slightly different training effect. He then goes a little deeper to talk micro-dosing high-intensity work in season, the sprint potential of elite athletes, how sprinting can protect against injuries, the benefits for hockey players, how personal trainers can effectively add sprints to their clients' regime, and my favorite, what kids can teach us about training and adding sprints into the regime. Phenomenal stuff here from one of the world's best. I'm a really big fan of Derek's work, and he does a terrific job of making the highly technical, easily digestible, and best of all, really applicable to you and your clients. As usual, you can check out my layups and performance hacks at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And a big thank you to all those sharing and asking questions. Please keep them coming on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Really appreciate the engagement and enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Derek Hansen. Derek is an international sports performance consultant that has been working with athletes, of all ages and abilities in speed, strength, and power sports since 1988. He has worked closely with some of the top performers in the world as a coach and as a consultant, including Olympic medalists, world record holders, Canadian national team athletes, and professional athletes from numerous sports. Derek worked as the head strength and conditioning coach for Simon Fraser University for 14 years and currently serves as a performance consultant to numerous professional teams and NCAA Division I programs throughout North America, specializing in speed development, strategic performance planning, return to competition protocols, and neuromuscular electrical stimulation programming. Derek is the founder and primary contributor to strengthpowerspeed.com, one of the premier sources of high-performance training information on the internet. Derek, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, Hopefully I can say something interesting and uh, get people excited. Terrific. Well, perhaps we can uh, kick things off by maybe giving listeners a little bit more background on how you got into sprinting and working in high performance. Uh, I'd say, you know, a lot of it stems back to the fact that I was a track and field athlete and I played other sports and, you know, I, I enjoyed, you know, playing soccer, basketball, you know, a whole bunch of other sports, but it, I think it was something that, uh, you know, something I keyed on with track was, you got a real tangible result. Um, you know, you did all this training, you go to a competition, not only are you measuring yourself against other individuals, but you get to measure yourself against yourself. And, and did I improve? Um, and when you're a kid, you always improve. So it was, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of cool from year to year to go along and, and jump farther or run faster or jump higher or throw something farther. So I think that really stuck with me. And, you know, I try to make that part of everything I do is you, you, what, what is a tangible result that I can 
quantify or relate to something that's happening in a, in a different sport. And, and, and that's, that's really big for me. You know, it's nice to be able to do stuff that's, uh, you know, looks cool and, but, but are you really getting a result? And I think that's, that's, you know, what drives me to, to find, uh, you know, the best ways of doing things and matching that up with people because, you know, everybody responds differently. So, um, it is a bit of a, a puzzle you're putting together and, and you want to see, you know, an output or a result that, that shows that you've improved the situation. And so with sprinting and, and, and running, um, that's a pretty easy one. Either you ran faster or you didn't. And, and solving those problems, uh, are, are a unique challenge for me. And I, I, you know, that's, that's where it starts. And then there's a whole bunch of other, other stuff that I do that kind of builds towards that. But, ultimately is somebody improving and and I, I you know i had a lot of mentors that really emphasized that whether it was al vermeil charlie francis um those types of people and when when you when you talk to them they're all about you know are we getting better are we improving the situation um you know they didn't want to be coaches because they thought it was a cool thing to do or they would get famous or make lots of money they were coaches because they wanted to help people and I think that's that, you know, that if you want to boil it down to something really basic like that, I think that's, that's what drives a lot of us. That's awesome. And before we dive into that puzzle and talk sprinting and building speed, uh, can you share the evolutionary connection to sprinting? You know, how was the ability to run fast such a crucial factor in our survival as early humans? <laughs> well, having not been back at that time, you know, I, I can't give you a firsthand account, but I would say... Uh, I think people forget, like I was just working with somebody the other day and, and I, I think it's so easy to get bogged down by the chronic stress of life. And, you know, people don't think that, that running is useful or sprinting is useful for anything these days. Cause you can jump in a car, you can, you know, do lots of things to go fast without actually having to put effort in. And, and when you think about maybe, you know, even 150 years ago, um, you know, if you didn't have a horse, you know, you were running um, to get away from somebody or chase something down. And, and I think that's, that, that's pretty important if you look at, you know, the, the history of civilization and how important being able to move on your feet was to now looking at where we are and people are trying to get something else to move for us. Um, and, and pretty soon we won't even be driving our own cars. So we're really uh, kind of devolving a bit. And I think that's, that's what, you know, again, interests me is how can we get back to some of these basic qualities and, and, and maybe uh, sprinting itself is, is a, 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 sorry, a, an acute stressor that we need as opposed to, uh, you know, getting bogged down by all the background noise and stress of life. Um, maybe we can get people to do this for their health. And I don't think a lot of people have looked at it that way. Um, so from an athlete perspective, um, and I may be getting ahead of myself, but that's what, you know, if I'm involved in rehabilitation, you know, sprinting is one of the key things that I use for that reason is we can provide a, a very easy way to, uh, acutely stress somebody in a way that, you know, maybe we were supposed to express ourselves, but we just don't do it as much these days. 
That's fantastic. I'm definitely going to circle back to the injury front here, but if we can stick with this evolutionary context a little more, I've also you know, heard you describe sprinting as one of the most pure expressions of the fight or flight response. Can you explain that to listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the flight part you know, from a running point of view is is pretty obvious. Um, you know, a good friend of mine, Giuseppe Guelli, you know, talked about this, this soccer player who never got injured and um, you know, he lived a pretty, uh, crazy lifestyle and didn't really care about stuff and just treated his body however he wanted to, but never got injured. And so when he approached him and said, how come, why do you think you don't have any injuries? Right. And he says, well, burglars don't pull hamstrings, which I thought was just a classic line where you have a scenario where somebody's just running away from the, the police and, and I, I don't know. I don't. I haven't seen a lot of accounts of people pulling their hamstring being pursued by the police. So I'll just go with it. But this idea that the only thing you care about is your survival and not getting caught, and so you'll call in everything, all the resources needed to to you know complete this escape um, is pretty interesting to me because I, I think you know when you watch Animal Kingdom, uh, I don't even know what the modern version of that is but when i was a kid you watch this show uh i think the guy's name was marlon perkins and he'd do um this show animal kingdom and you'd see like the, the cheetah the cheetah chasing after the the antelope or the deer or whatever and uh you, you didn't see the deer grab its hamstring and go oh you know hold up here i got a little bit i got a second degree hamstring strain so either it got away or it died so now we're in a at a point where we don't have those scenarios and maybe people aren't required to recruit as, um, fully, uh, because it's not a life or death situation. And, um, maybe we're kind of mired in, in mediocrity in that regard. So it's easier for you to insufficiently recruit your hamstring. Um, and you know, that way we're going to have more injuries because we're not as efficient. We're not recruiting fully. So I always think about that when I watch people play sports and when people get injured and rather than saying maybe everybody needs more recovery, maybe it's the opposite end of the spectrum we have to be looking at. Maybe we need to apply a certain type of stressor on people so that they are more resilient. And, you know, the, the evolutionary discussion is always compelling to me. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want it to be a cliche, but definitely, I think we have to think about what, how did we evolve and what were the basic functions that we were required to do, whether it's to hunt or, you know, survive. Um, and, and you don't want to take that too far, obviously. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a a big, you know, paleo eater or whatever. I just, you know, I, I figure if I want to lose weight, I'll just not eat as much, but, um, you know, it, it, I think it's 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 a it's a good thing to fall back on and go. Well, why were we put on this earth, right? So, absolutely. And you know, a common misconception you've highlighted in your work is people lumping all sprinting together as a one-dimensional linear effect. You know, you go on to describe yep. how virtually every step from start through acceleration to maximum velo- velocity offers you know different training effects. Can you walk listeners through that progression? Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting that if you look at the data of some of the top performers and things like stride frequency, stride length, uh, ground contact time, for the most part, the only thing that stays pretty constant 
and some people get this wrong too, is, is stride frequency. And it's usually about four to five strides per second. So that's pretty constant. And I'll watch my kids run, you know, and you do the calculation in your head. I'm, I'm not so obsessive that I'm like filming them and breaking down their stride frequency, <laughs> nice. but, but you kind of see like, okay, they're turning over about the same frequency as, as an elite performer. The only difference is they're not putting as much force into the ground. And so the stride length is significantly shorter. Um, but when you look at stride length and you look at um, what's happening on the ground, every step gets a little more forceful and the ground contact time gets shorter. And a lot of the time it happens in pairs. So you'll see two strides are the same, then the next two are different, then the next two, obviously you got two legs and you know it works that way. But uh, the fact that you can have a ground contact time. I think uh, at block clearance, it could be as high as you know three tenths of a second, and then at the faster end, you're below a tenth of a second. You know that's a pretty broad array of, of of things that are happening, and and you know what's happening in the lower lower chain in terms of knee flexion and heel recovery and 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 what muscles are involved. I think that's pretty interesting. And from a re if we go back to the rehab scenario. It doesn't look sexy, but getting people to accelerate um, covers a lot of bases. And if we kept things simple, and and again, you know, <laughs> I, I assume that the caveman who, I don't know if he pulled his hamstring, but the caveman who got injured basically ran himself back into shape. Otherwise, he'd die. You know that. You know, if we fall back on that, then it gets pretty compelling to me. Yeah, that's very, very, very well said. Um... And if we dovetail this into elite performance, you know, when I think of speed, I think of football. Uh, you recently had some some great content in your podcast of NFL players, like I think it was Tyreek Hill, you know, achieving max velocities around what 20.5, 21 miles an hour, looks yeah. like blazing speed. But you mentioned that these athletes have the potential for closer to 26 miles an hour. Um, you know, what are the opportunities for these ultra elite to improve and gain that sort of 15 percent? Yeah, I mean, if again. You know, it's it's not it's sort of apples and oranges and it isn't. But if you look at some of the top females, uh, they're getting up 24, 25 miles per hour at top speed. Um, so 20.8 on the football field might seem impressive, but they're really not getting close to what I think they're capable of doing. And does that mean they're capable of doing on the football field? Not necessarily, you know, because there's so many other factors in terms of equipment, fatigue and um other people being in the way. So should we get them up to 22 miles per hour on the field or 23? That would be nice. Um, But what ends up happening is during the week, uh, you know, they're practicing, they're doing all these different activities. uh, Everything gets watered down because if you have a two hour practice, you're not going to be hitting high speeds. And I always tell people if, if you and I, Mark got on a starting line and I said, we're racing to 30 yards we're going to go all out, right? We're not going to leave anything in the tank. But if I said we're going to do a marathon, I'm going to be walking off that line, quite honestly. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, pushing myself. Um, so, you know, knowing that I'm going into a two-hour practice and I got to go through all these drills that we've gone through before, I will, you know, down-regulate and I'm not going to push myself. So if the highest velocity I'm ever reaching in a game is 20.8 and I know that potentially I could go 26 on a track with spikes. That's that's a big gap in my opinion. Now, you know, how does that get resolved? Well, it'd be nice if you could do something intense during the week um, that 
covers that. Does that mean you have to get on a track and sprint? No, but you should at least try to be accelerating um, maybe you know a little bit beyond that that 20.8 or whatever it was uh, velocity. Having said that, now you got to go back and you got to go to the off season training and go, are they actually hitting high velocities in off season? And I would argue that most of them probably aren't because you know you see what people do for training and it you know I'm I'm not a huge speed ladder guy, but you see people go through speed ladders and their feet might be moving fast, but their bodies certainly aren't, and that's a problem. So if this is the base of your training that you're doing these little agility movements and moving your feet and tap dancing. That's great for Broadway, but it's not great. <laughs> it's, not, it's not great for the football field, right? Uh, at the highest level. So where does it come from? Where do you get this stimulus? Well, you know, sprinting is a good thing to do. If you've done it in the off season, uh, for an extended period of time, say, say you do it for 12 weeks, which is what they used to train for, um, in the old days in the NFL, you'd have you go to the facility and train for 12 weeks. Now it's like three or five. Um, so if you're not putting in that time to sprint in the off season, you should not be doing it in season now because you just haven't developed a base, uh, a reserve of speed. So it gets very difficult. You have to look at the entire season. And this is what I try to do when I work with teams is let's look at the big picture so that if we do these things properly in the off season, when it comes to the in season period, now you have more options to, to maintain qualities and maybe advanced qualities. And that's, that's the biggest argument I put forward all the time. Absolutely. And you know, what, what are some of those factors then for coaches to consider when they're sort of microdosing a high intensity work during the in season period? If you consider that in the off season, they've trained that up. Yeah. If they've trained it up, great. Now, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, if somebody's squatted 500 pounds in the off season, well, then it gets very interesting to work around 350 to, you know, to 425 or, you know, it all comes down to percentages and, and what, what you can work with. But if you've only squatted 200 pounds in the off season, you know, you're essentially doing body weight squats for the rest of the season, which isn't doing anything. It's not accomplishing anything. Like, um, I was just, you know, I just texting back and forth with Mark Uyama at the Vikings and they had a player go down and we're talking about the, if you watch the film of, um, I think his name's cook, last name's cook running back and he's running full bore. He cuts his leg collapses and, and you know, he goes down and it's, it's going to probably be a full ACL repair that he needs at some point. But, you know, on turf at that velocity, I don't know what his body weight is. Um, that's pretty significant and that's something that you have to prepare for. And it's not that it's probably not that he didn't prepare for it, but the demands placed on players nowadays running full speed and stopping on, I would say a surface that's not very forgiving with the, the cleats that they have and the, the coefficient of friction that they're encountering. Um, he could do that once he could do that twice. He might be able to do that 10 times in a game or 20 times in a practice but you know he's he's uh, he's narrowing the margin, right? Like it's it's got to go at some point. You know, I, I don't think anybody's had to do that. You know, uh, in the past, whether it's people like um, Jim Brown or um, Walter Payton, they didn't have these same problems, right? Because the surface is different, the game was a little different, and now it's 
you know, go as fast as you can. It might be 20 miles per hour. And then you have to stop on a dime and cut and get around people on a surface that's going to stop you. Uh, there's not going to be any slip. So I, I just think, how do we prepare for that? Um, and it, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, uh, a lot of these teams are going to survive based on whether or not the roster is healthy. Um, and we saw that with the Patriots, too, with one of their receivers going down. It's, you know, who can preserve the players and make them durable? I think that's going to be the limiting factor in with a lot of these teams' uh, futures. Definitely. I mean, staying healthy is so key, especially in contact sports like football. Uh, now, on the injury front, you know, how does high-intensity sprinting help to protect the athletes from some of these soft tissue injuries, um, or can it expose them to potential risk? I mean, there's inherent risk in everything, obviously. And, and so you're just trying to balance things off and say, okay, uh, can I get, you know, we talked about that uh, 20 miles per hour is probably 80% of what their potential output is. Okay, do we need to go 100%? Well, no, we don't need to. We could probably go 90 or 95, and that's still way better than that 80. So by stripping off 5%, I think you've reduced risks significantly and prepared the athlete better. So if I'm sprinting at 95%, um, I'm still getting some pretty good ground contact times uh, in terms of, you know, short ground contact times and the amount of recruitment required. And I think sometimes working at 95%, um, you know, especially if you explain it to the athlete in terms of what 95% is, you can remove some of that extraneous tension in other muscle groups that may be opposing what you're trying to do. Uh, learn how to operate at high velocities under a relaxed condition. And I think that in itself is going to make people more resilient, you know, um, working at higher outputs, learning to control yourself a little bit better, um, learning how to turn muscles on and off very quickly, um, and not creating residual fatigue that's going to create problems later on, I think is, is pretty compelling. And again, unfortunately, it takes it takes some practice. It takes a lot of uh, you know personal time and involvement to learn how to coach these things properly and where to insert them and 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 what volumes to use. And I think that's the biggest thing I'm asked is like, well, how much is enough? And it says, well, how much can they give me? Um, how much can I shave off? How much? The biggest one is how much time do we have? Time and energy, actually. But a lot of the time, it's time. Will the coach give us this extra time? Will the players allow us to use a, another 10 minutes of practice? Or, you know, does everybody just want to get the hell out of there? <laughs> yeah. So these there, there's a whole logistical issue around doing this properly. And football, like many sports, um, has a lot of tradition. And they like to do things a certain way. And I think when you start looking at where are they getting value? How many repetitions do they need to learn this play? How many repetitions do they need to, you know, perfect things? I think it's probably a lot less than people think, but there's so much insecurity. And I'm not saying insecurity like, you know, I don't I don't like myself. It's it's insecurity like I gotta win next week, so I I, I keep my job. And that that plays into it because now everybody thinks they have to do more, or at least give the impression that they're putting in more time and effort. Um, so that they can retain their job. And that's, that's where things break down, I think, is if you can identify optimal or, you know, I don't know if optimal, but, but the best case scenarios for how much work I need for each individual element, um, you'll be in a better place. But, you know, just 
pushing for more and more and more is not the way to go. And we know this, right? So that that's the message I'm trying to get across all the time is how do we do things better, not more? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that we see often now. Obviously, you know, hamstring tear is so common in the, in the NFL and other sports. Um, you know, you write about accelerations over 10 meters being able to support hamstring rehabilitation. Can you can you touch on that? Yeah, and, and I think I just looked at the numbers and I had a talk with the Kansas City strength coach and I said, yeah, there's like 31 hamstrings, uh, you know, that are keeping guys out of practice right now. And he's like, well, it's probably more than that. It's just not reported all, all the time, right? So let's say it's the numbers 40 or 50. There's 40 or 50 hamstrings ongoing at any given time in the NFL. That's a lot. And you know, I, I like breaking things down into the financial side. If people don't want to worry about, you know, just the, the, the personal side and the individual side, what about the money that's being left on the table? So if you can sprint somebody over short distances, that's good because there's intensity involved. The ground contact times are still short. Um, there's less eccentric stress on the hamstring because over short distances, there's more knee flexion. Um, you're not in an upright position. You're not going to strike the ground with a straight leg. You're going to strike the ground with more flexion. So, you know, the hamstring is, is protected under that condition of going from, you know, zero to 10 yards or 10 meters. And that's why those are very good initially to start working on hamstring, uh, rehabilitation. So, and then gradually from there, you can start inching out, you know, 15 yards, 20 yards, 25, 30 and usually people are upright from 25 yards on, except unless you're a really large lineman and you might stand up a little quicker. So using the shorter distances allows you to apply the stress on the athlete um, and, and at the same time progress out and gradually through the act of running start creating more eccentric stress on that hamstring in a very progressive way so that by the time you're out to 30 yards, I can say, yep, you're ready to go. You can play the game. We shouldn't have any problems. So that's why just accelerating provides that progression in itself. You know, it's all nicely tied up into a nice little package, yet, you know, people don't want to do it, right? <laughs> it's too, so, too straightforward, too effective. It is like, you know, uh, you know, because everybody thinks they can run like when they're, Hey, I used to run as a kid. Right. So it, it can't be that complicated, but it actually is pretty complicated. It's complicated in terms of the neuromuscular component and, you know, everything that's happening when you hit the ground and, and even the upper body involvement is important. Um, and I, I, even for rehabbing shoulders and other parts of the body, I'll still use sprinting because I think it's a good systemic sort of stress to put on the body uh, and the brain that can have crossover effects. Absolutely. And if we shift gears over to ice hockey, you know, how can dryland training help improve acceleration and high velocity sprinting in hockey? I mean, ice hockey for the most part is acceleration and gliding, right? It's not anybody skating, you know, it's not like, uh, long track speed skating or even short track speed skating, but I did a lot of work with long track and, you know, quite a few world record holders. And so when we analyze long track start, you know, into top speed, the first five, six strides are, they look very similar to sprinting. So we would do, we'd go to the, the running track and we'd have guys sprint sometimes out of starting blocks, sometimes out of a skate start. And we had them do dry land sprinting. 
And if they had any issue with their dry land sprinting in terms of where their foot placement was or how their head was, their posture, or their hand, when we went to the ice, they exhibited exactly the same issues. So why not just fix it on the track? Because you don't want to be on the ice all the time. It's cold. Come on. Uh, So uh, you could resolve these issues in a dry land scenario put them back in their skates and then, you know, have it come out and transfer in, in, in that modality. So, um, that's what I do. If I work with anybody who skates, you know, we get you on the ground first. Now, obviously there's other components to skating and turning and all that. That's not my bag. Somebody else can handle that. But as far as the acceleration goes, I think that's probably pretty important, uh, for the outcome of a hockey game. If, if your guys can all accelerate very well. So that's what we do. We sprint. Fantastic. And obviously common injuries in, in hockey are things like pulled groins. You know, how does that type of training impact, you know, groins, hip flexors, and the ability for these professional hockey players, elite hockey players to tolerate, you know, the necessary forces and velocities? I mean, it's, again, it's very similar. I think the benefit of, of sprinting, and people might not think elastic responses are, are useful in ice hockey. I would argue that they are. Like, you're still... You know, there's elastic responses happening all through your your lower kinetic chain. So it, they, a lot of people think, well, it's in a it's in a skate, and the skate's you know steel or whatever, and it hits the ice, and you're not getting much elasticity. But I would argue you still are. And even other parts of that chain, there's elastic responses happening through tendons. And so when I train those things on the track or on whatever uh, on solid ground, and then I think there's a nice transfer to those same responses, whether it's from the hip, the knee, wherever, um, where you go on the ice. So if I get more of an elastic response, and this is the problem with a lot of people doing uh, running A's and all these drills, is they think, oh, your hip flexors aren't strong enough. You're not lifting your knee high enough, right? And my argument is, no, no, no. They're not putting enough force in the ground to get an elastic response to allow that leg to rebound up. Because if I'm relying on my hip flexors to draw the leg up, that's too bloody slow for what I need to do. I need quickness off the ground so that that leg just recoils up naturally. And I would argue it's the same in skating. Um, and I don't think you know I don't think people in ice hockey are looking at it that way. Um, if we un- if we add more elasticity, I would say we would unload a lot of those adductors and and hip flexors, and we'd have less problems. Yeah, it's so interesting in terms of the. Uh dynamics and technique um, for a lot of our listeners and trainers and coaches uh, listening in are endurance athletes so how does high intensity sprinting you know impact endurance sports such as running cycling swimming well i think from the endurance point of view um, everybody thinks endurance is slow and and it's not at least at the highest levels and you know there's enough studies to show that strength training and sprint training improves running economy for the same reasons I explained with the ice hockey scenario is if you're more elastic, um, you're going to require less energy, less muscular energy to propel yourself. And I use the example of the, you know, I have two basketballs, one's half inflated and the other's one's a new England Patriots basketball and the other one's (laughs) a regular inflated basketball and you throw them down the court, which one's going to go farther? Well, it's the one that's more elastic, right? With the same force behind it. The, the bouncy ball is going to go farther. And I would say the same thing applies for endurance athletes. The more elastic you are, uh, 
the less energy you're going to expend per stride. And so how do we get uh, endurance athletes to do this? Well, you can do uh, some degree of elastic plyos, low amplitude plyos, whether it's over little hurdles or not, just getting their feet activated. And um, the other part of it is sprinting in itself is very elastic and plyometric. So by doing shorter sprints at higher intensity, we're building these stretch reflexes that are going to transfer to um, you know the the endurance athlete. And and I, I in my presentations I'll go over you know when you look at the elites how fast they're actually running. So I think the marathon world record is like just over two hours and it breaks down to about a, a 440 mile uh, pace for 26 times. So the guy who's going to win has to run a faster mile than all of us could do for just one mile, but he's doing 26 of them. That's incredible. And, and if you break it down to, in order to run a 440 uh, mile 26 times, that guy's probably like a 352, 351 uh, single miler. Like he could run in one mile really freaking fast. And so in order to run that mile under four minutes and 350 or 351, his 400 meters is probably 46 seconds. Like, you know, we could walk through the streets of downtown Toronto and, and Vancouver and not find one person who could do that, right? One time. Yeah. So... Uh, so you got to run 46, which is probably at least a 10, five for a hundred meter. So not many people can run 10, five. So in order for that guy to be that, that, uh, marathon champion, he's got to be a sprinter too, to some degree. Um, and when you break it down like that, it gets, it gets more compelling for the endurance people, I think. And you know, the, I know the women's 800 is not a great example, but the world records 153 and, um, I think that athlete that has that record ran uh, 47.9 in the 400, and she also ran 21.7 in the 200 and 11 flat in the in the 100. So if you want to run fast over longer distances, you got to be fast over shorter distances. That's how it works. Terrific. And um, listening to a recent interview on your podcast with George Caraval, you guys talked about this sort of new era of, of technology and the desire to control and measure everything. Uh, can you speak to kind of finding that balance between, you know, quote unquote, the old school techniques and the sort of new tech and data driven methods? I, I, I mean, I'm, a, you know, obviously we both love technology, otherwise we wouldn't be talking here. But I think that you have to, in order to be a good coach or a good sports scientist, you have to understand what the limitations of everything are in terms of time and and, and workflow and, and I think I'm a big fan of just using a handheld stopwatch for that reason um, but there it, it takes some skill to use a stopwatch properly um, and consistently and but I can get a lot of athletes through and I can time them and I can keep things moving if I have to have electronic timing I got to set it up I got to make sure it's not malfunctioning and hopefully all of the information is accurate and it's not just because it's electronic or, you know, involves technology doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate or consistent. So, you know, there's all of these other factors and issues that come up when you start implementing technology and it may not make your situation better. Um, I was, was going to try to write this article on uh, the U.S. Navy and how they've had four ships either run aground or smash into a, a, a freighter in, in the Pacific Ocean in, off the coast of Asia. And I, I would assume they have great technology on board, 
but maybe they just don't have a dude on the front of the the, the ship looking and seeing <laughs> if there's a ship in the way, right? You know, it's that exactly. simple, right? So we rely so much on technology to tell us what to do when maybe we should just, you know, simplify things and go, okay, what's the best way not to run into another ship? It's use our own eyes. Um, so, yeah, I, I just... I, I, there's certain things like I love using video and I think there's a lot of advantages to it, but if it starts to impede, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish, then you got to know when to kind of cut things short and say, okay, this is what it's useful for. I'm not going to use it for anything else. And and that's, that's, I think where people are having issues right now. Yeah, definitely great advice. And if we, Transition out of talking about the use of sprints for you know health and fitness in the general population. You know how can say personal trainers introduce sprint training uh, to people who are new to the activity or, or folks who haven't done it in a while. Uh, you know I I spend a lot of time um, talking to people who own private facilities and uh, I've done a lot of talks and workshops with these with these individuals and I'm you know always very encouraged at how the private sector is is coming up with new ideas and innovating. So when we go to a facility, a lot of these facilities won't have like a 400 meter track at their disposal or, you know, they might have from wall to wall, they might have 20 yards. And, and so how do you use sprinting in those scenarios? And you have to get creative and obviously you can accelerate for 10 yards and maybe have another 10 yards to decelerate. Um, there's certain resistance devices you can use um, to, 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 you know, keep the velocities down, but the intensities high whether it's a sled or, you know, something else, bungee cords. Um, but I, I always go back to the, the drills that Gerard Mock had developed, the A's and B's and all these things. And he did that for a reason. Like, he didn't just say, hey, I want to, you know, be a, a marketing guru and come up with drills to attach my name to. It was really out of necessity and the fact that, you know, during the winter they had to do something to prepare themselves in a probably a small gymnasium setting so doing the drills vertically um still worked on a lot of the same qualities in terms of hip extension you know hip flexion and um you know the ground contact requirements and the coordination between upper body and lower body so using those drills in a personal training setting i think can be very valuable now you you have to learn how to implement the drills properly and honestly they're not the most exciting thing to do um, so you have to back that with some education and awareness to make people understand that they're very effective and they're gonna you know move us forward for you know if you're a weekend warrior you're a you know a recreational distance runner you want to do a tough mutter i don't you know whatever but I think they're very, very useful for developing qualities that can transfer to all of those people. And, you know, just you just have to find a time when to use them, be consistent with it, make sure the technique is good, make sure you know how to, you know, cue people properly. And I think that's something that I do with everybody. I, I work with, you know, again, NFL players, I work with actors and that's what we do. And it's funny when you work with somebody who's an actor who hasn't really been exposed to a lot of training uh, stuff, technology and, and, and training methods. And you do these drills, which I've done since I was, you know, eight years old. They're like, this is amazing. This is new. This is great. Right. And you're like, OK, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but they see the benefit because they haven't been exposed to all this other crap that's out there. And and they get 
they get a benefit from it, whether they want to be better in their movie or just want to go for a run uh, or body composition wise. I, I've had a lot of su- success with it. Yeah, that's awesome and great, uh, great tips there. And you know, I recently had uh, Dr. Martin Gabal on and he shared some of his research on HIIT training and things like prediabetes and cardiovascular disease. And a recent study actually showed that about 70% of doctors, GPs want to prescribe exercise, but really aren't sure how to do it. Um, so if you had to give some advice to GPs around things like, you know, sprinting, um, you know, how would you go about that? What would you start with? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> uh, well, again, you can't just tell somebody to go sprint. You know, I, I think that's, that's probably in, and unfortunately it's a very easy thing to do, uh, theoretically, but practically, you know, people have to have some, some level of, um, competency, uh, and some progression that they follow, um, so that they can, you know, I would go back to, you know, finding somebody who can teach the drills properly. And then from there, once they can do everything vertically, then, you know, it's, it's no different than a hamstring rehab where we start everybody vertically and do all the mock drills and, okay, are you competent or do you have any pain doing that? No. Okay. Now we can get you to start sprinting out of that. So treat every general population person as somebody who's been injured. Um, that's not a bad way to approach it. You know, you use the same progressions and again, I don't think it takes a lot of expertise. You have to be exposed to what are the, the key things you're looking for and how fast to progress somebody. But that's not difficult. I can teach somebody in probably 30 minutes what they need to know, and then they just have to hone it from there. So if, if you're a doctor, I mean, like anything with any doctor, I think the ability to refer and refer to good people is probably critical. So maybe there's a network that you have to develop around your practice to help support, you know, you know, these referrals. And I, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, I don't know how to do that, but, uh, there has to be some awareness around, you know, what options are available to people. And it's, and and I'm not going to, it's about, you know, physical therapists or chiropractors. Um, but I, you know, not all of these people are equipped to handle this type of thing. So you have to find people that are, and maybe, you know, I know a lot of physical therapists and chiropractors who do the, the strength and conditioning and, and, and coach as well. And those are very valuable people to, to have at your disposal. Um, so maybe as a physician, you have to, to develop your network and make sure you have some of those people as part of your arsenal um, when, uh, when referring and prescribing. 100%. It's definitely, you know, something I encourage a lot of docs to do. And I know that for patients, it's definitely a really um, motivating thing to know that it, you know, it is not too different from training folks who are on the elite side of things as well. Now, if we, if we circle all the way back, you know, to this sort of, you know, primal aspect of just running being natural to us, I always think of kids, you know, they virtually just sprint or, or, you know, walking or running at a steady pace just doesn't seem to be in their DNA. Um, and of course, organized sport today is, is so prevalent, especially at a really young age. Um, you know, what's the, the, the balance there of too much structure, uh, over coaching and things like that with, with young kids in organized sport? Yeah, that's, you know, I think we all recognize structure as being positive and, you know, for the most part, yes, it's nice to have structure because it gives us a starting point upon which to, you know, build more individual strategies. Now where it goes crazy is that structure now doesn't allow us to really think on our feet. 
And I think that's from an organized sport point of view, that's where things go wrong. And I, I do, I still do some teaching within the NCCP, the Canadian coaching uh, certification program. And I even see issues there where, you know, there should be more mentorship, there should be more apprenticeship and the certification, like anything, you know, it's, you know, take this course, you know, write this exam, you know, fill out this workbook and now you're ready. And, and it really doesn't work that way. Um, so I think what ends up happening is that approach lends itself to people following worksheets, following, uh, canned workout programs that somebody has said, Oh, this is what you do. And everybody takes it as gospel. And I have to follow this when you don't really have to, you just have to look at what responses you're getting from your athletes and then make adjustments. That takes a lot of work to understand how to make those adjustments and a lot of time. So there's no quick fix. And, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching people and teaching, you know, future coaches, I think that's the most important thing to um, to really explain to them is that you have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to be spontaneous with the people you're working with and address their specific needs at the time. And with my own kids, that's all I'm trying to do. Like I could, we have a little weight room in our house and I was doing weights with them. And I don't know, it, it just felt a little too artificial and so I'll, I'll have better results when we go out and we do things out on an open field and we try to create a scenario where uh, they can express themselves, one, uh, maximally, but also create creatively. And then that seems to have better results than me overstructuring things. Because you can see when you overstructure stuff, people tend to downregulate me mentally and they just don't have as much fun as you know, just having a spontaneous game of tag or, you know, something along those lines. So that's, I always keep that in the back of my mind when working with anyone, whether it's somebody at the elite level or somebody who's just starting out is that you have to make things, you know, spontaneous to some degree. Otherwise you're going to lose, you're going to lose people and, and not get the best result. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, can I ask in terms of any sort of examples of, of games or, or you know, drills or what you want to call it for, for kids or children when you're kind of starting them out down that road? I, I think sometimes people, um, you know, especially now, uh, they don't like to set kids up into competitive situations that can be semi-confrontational, right? So if you say we're going to race, you know, kids are going to race and that's the natural, I think that's a natural tendency when you're a kid that you want to test yourself against somebody or let's race or let's, you know, do something that's competitive, um, in a way that almost exposes you. I, I think that's, that's a bit missing right now. And obviously if you take the score out of games and all that, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think anything that makes it competitive is, is very important, um, and fun. So, you know, we'll set up different <coughs> races, with my kids and I'll race them and hopefully not pull a hamstring. But I think, you know, I, I don't know how to articulate this, but just setting up scenarios where they don't have to think, um, and they can just go full, full tilt. Um, and that might involve using a ball or it might involve creating some sort of race or adversarial kind of situation. 
Um, and then just making sure that, you know, if, if somebody does feel like, you know, they've lost too many times, you can kind of diffuse that and turn it into something else, you know, cause you know, winning's important, but losing's also important. And I think that we don't, we don't look at losing as, as something that can drive people as much as we used to, I think. Um, so I, I don't know, there's a, there's probably a huge psychology component of, behind that that I'm not really looking at, but I think you know, things that are more organic tend to work better. Um, and then you kind of, you know, you, you try to manage it, but you don't try to overstructure it. That's for, that's for sure. I love it. Yeah. Great, uh, great tips. And I love the fact that creativity is such a big part for kids too. So it probably translates pretty well when we bring it up to adults as well. Um, awesome, Derek, so many phenomenal insights. Um, I want to respect your time. So last question for you on the personal side of things, how do you start your day? Are you a coffee guy? And how do you carve out sprints into your busy schedule? Um, yes, I, you know, I, I sometimes wish I wasn't a coffee guy, but it does kind of smooth things out for me. And I don't know if it, it's, um, like it activates me. I, I just think it, I don't know, like I, I, I'm pursuing this whole signal and noise theory thing and, and I got into some discussions with people about, you know, is it, do we just need signal? Is it good to have noise? And, and a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at seems to point back to the fact that you need a certain level of noise in your system. And I think what coffee does is it just adds some background noise into your system to help things run more efficiently <laughs> from a neurological point of view. And the, the term I'm looking at is stochastic resonance. And I think there's a lot to that term in terms of adding noise to a system to provide an optimal result. Um, whether it's, you know, some people operate better with music behind them or background white noise behind them. Like when you, when you have trouble sleeping and then you turn a fan on, um, some people just sleep better having rather than ha being in complete silence. And I think that's, that's what coffee does for me. It kind of smooths things out. And, um, you know, I try not to abuse it. You know, I'll have a, one in the morning, Sometimes if I'm feeling a little off, I might have something a little later in the day, obviously not too close to, to bedtime, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's probably one of the, the, uh, less, um, uh, negative vices to have. Absolutely. And, for sure. You know, so yeah, I'll do that. Um, as far as the sprinting goes, I'm really, you know, I'll try to incorporate it. Being in Canada is not the best in the winter for doing sprinting. So uh, I'll try to balance it off with some other things. I used to do a lot more weightlifting in the past. I don't do as much now. Just, you know, it just doesn't interest me as much. So I'll try to be more creative with the sprinting and, and find a hill or something I can use uh, for sprinting. Um, maybe minimum once a week, but probably maximum twice a week. I just find that that works well for me. And even I talked to Al Vermeil, who's, you know, I think he's 75 now or 74, and he still sprints. He goes out and sprints on the grass and he'll send me pictures of the hill he's sprinting up. And so, you know, you can do this obviously, you know, in your later years and still get some benefit. You're not as fast, but from a relative sense, you're moving a lot faster than you normally would. And so that, that's important. And, and I, I don't dis, um, sort of, uh, discount the value of doing things aerobically and, because I have younger kids, we'll get out and we'll ride bikes and, 
and I hadn't done that for a while. And now I'm back into, you know, I'll, I'll go to meetings and I'll ride my bike and I'll push it. And, you know, I have the GPS, uh, my t- little technology on the side to see what my average speed is and what. And so I get a lot out of that too, by pushing myself in that respect. And I feel like I advance myself too. So, you know, I, I don't think I'm necessarily just a speed person. I think I understand how everything has to kind of fall into place in the right amounts. And, but if you're, if you're not doing something that's high intensity, whether it's speed, jump, throw, uh, or maybe lifting, um, I think you'll run into some issues eventually and, and vice versa. If you're not doing the, the aerobic side, uh, the low intensity side, I think you could have some issues. So it's, it's you know, it's all, I hate to say it, but it's, there's a balance that everybody has to find. Awesome, Derek. Well, listen, massive thank you for taking the time today. Uh, where can people keep up with your phenomenal work and uh, stay connected with you on social media? Uh, you know, again, we're, we're trying to still pump out, you know, different little podcasts, articles, and, and um, written articles on the strengthpowerspeed.com site and on social media. I'll be at, at Derek M. Hansen and, you know, just try to, you know, put things forward that I think are interesting. I'm trying to do a little, um, what I call like a video essay series where we talk about different issues. And the next one we're going to try to talk about is the ACL issue. And I'll have, you know, little sound bites from different people offering their expertise and just try to make it interesting. And then the other site that I'm working on and I'll have it out very soon is sprintcoach.com where I want it to be a mentorship site for coaches, but also if people just want to purchase, uh, um, like a, a training program, and just to give people a start on how to actually write a training program and how to follow it for, from a sprinting point of view. I think there's a lot of training programs out there that talk about you know, lifting weights and getting stronger. But I don't think there's enough information out there on how to put together a running-based speed program. And that's what I'm trying to do with that SprintCoach.com site is give people resources and, and, you know, some of it, you know, will, there'll be a lot of free stuff that we're offering and, um, you know, to give people an opportunity to learn. But at the same time, if you really want a custom based solution, then you can, you can, uh, pay a fee and we'll make sure you get the best possible training program to fit your circumstances. So that's, those are the, some of the projects we're working on. That's fantastic. We'll definitely keep our eyes open for that. And uh, I'll include links to all those in a brief podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Derek, for coming on today. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. You can use the hashtag drbubspp. If you enjoyed the show, please take a couple minutes, head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us your rating of the show. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.